Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs in a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today I'm very lucky to be joined by my good friend, Kayvan Ackbury. How you doing, Kayvan? Really well, thank you. Good. Thanks for coming on the show again. It's, I've realized it was like 2015. We were in person and plenty has happened since then. And I finally ago. got you back on. Yeah, four years. That's crazy. And I finally got you back on the show. So I'm super, super excited. I'm super excited too. A lot has happened in your life over the last couple of months, uh, one of which is obviously moving back to Madrid. What is this new role then you've taken up in Madrid? So I was offered to be to lead the uh, B2B vertical of this uh, of our only unicorn we have in Spain uh, called Cabify, which is a ride uh, ride hailing uh, company. What was a unicorn? It's a tech company valued in more than one billion. I think lots of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one 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 US uh, dollars a billion because in Spain one billion is actually a thousand. Don't know, like a lot of uh, is completely different level, but that that's not what is important. Uh, what is important is that the opportunity and the impact that uh, I can have in in this role and in this company uh, looks uh, really exciting for me. Awesome, yeah. So you're saying you're the head of engineering there, then. So what kind of is your role there? Then are you bashing out a keyboard programming, or are you taking more of a backseat kind of management role there? It's uh, about leadership, about uh, empowering uh, the team and the individuals and the leads uh, and keep growing the team, finding uh, ways to improve all methodologies, uh, helping people to progress in the career path that we define, uh, helping with engineering vision, uh, the product mission, uh, building a cultural uh, uh, culture of uh, technical excellence and uh, customer focus and providing uh, a structure for supporting lines. Nice. That is a lot of work there. Then. Yeah, yeah. But it's, and it's, I'm always interested. Like, so you obviously, you know, you've been working, I don't know, is it a couple of months now? For, uh, more than a couple of months, like almost six Jeez. months. <laughs> okay, so, geez. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Time wow, flies. Wow, wow. Time flies. It does indeed. And like, how do you, how do you start? Like, how do you, you know, you obviously go into the company and you've obviously, you know, the company from kind of, you know, externally and you go in and you kind of submerge yourself there. And how do you start like kind of doing it? Because I mean, what you're doing there is not only just, you know, writing code, you're actually trying to change or, you know, really the culture and how does it work? I think the best way to get into something is to just get along with the team. Uh, so I, I started more like as an individual contributor. So the team can get used to the way I work, for example. Um, so was so that you just making your own pull requests, working on little features and whatnot? Exactly. And suggesting things. And you start like as an individual contributor. And uh, when the team uh, is ready for you to take the role, then is when you step up. Very cool. And then obviously then, yeah, you slowly, I mean, because one thing actually was we're trying to arrange this interview, uh, is, well, this, this podcast and stuff, is that obviously Mondays for you are a big day because that's like the day you do all of your one-to-ones and stuff. So I'm guessing, yeah. you know, speaking to everyone, you know, keeping in communication, it, it sounds like a very, very like stressful, but rewarding job. It is, it is really rewarding. Like uh, uh, previously I was in, in TransferWise and um, one of my greatest achievements there was um, 
seeing the people I supported grow. It's actually nicer than seeing yourself, isn't it? It's, yeah. quite, it's more rewarding seeing someone else that it, you know it, it, kind it, of gone through the steps. Yeah, yeah. I think actually the ultimate goal for leaders uh, is to make them redundant. Like it's a really powerful, I would say, direction. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's kind of a one that you have to own, don't you? That you feel, yeah, my job is to actually make myself completely useless here. Exactly. And, and it's scary. That actually could be scary. And it, it takes a special person like yourself, you know, who actually can own that and honor that because some people will openly try and make themselves obviously still relevant yeah, because exactly. they don't want to lose their job. Whereas you are kind of, you know, but, constantly but, moving. But, but, you know, the, the cool thing is in, in, in companies uh, this big, usually there's many teams. And uh, there's many opportunities to help other teams too. So maybe you make your team autonomous and everything works fine. And then you can move to another team and try to help them out. It's so interesting because you're autonomous in code, autonomous in actual like structure and leadership as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, very, very interesting. And so, so obviously you've moved back to Madrid now from London. Uh, so what do you miss from London now six months in? Ah, uh, nothing. No, no, no. Yes. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm very grateful. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. It's all gone. Cra- <laughs> well, since you've left, mate, it's all gone crashing down, hasn't it? So you know, you, you've left I it, mean, and it's I, gone. I, I miss the Brexit conversations. And- oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, actually, um, I think the tech ecosystem and community is quite interesting there. Like, there's many communities. Uh, there's many meetups. This always talks about stuff. Uh, don't know. It, it feels like uh, massive compared, for example, with Madrid. Uh, so, would you say like London's similar to what probably what Silicon Valley's like in that it's you know that kind of everything and very hot on everything. Exactly. Like the the communities that uh, we we I used to be I, I used to participate in London were quite uh, interesting and uh, there were many choices. I would say, uh, for example. Uh, <laughs> there were every month there were at, at least uh, five meetups on on JavaScript, uh, functional JavaScripters. Uh, oh, each, every paradigm. Script. Let's yeah, go yeah, for yeah. it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so here in Madrid, we have uh, less of that, and also like the the tech community supported by companies, as in London, there's a way more culture for startups and uh, tech tech companies. Uh, there's many smaller communities uh, organized and, and driven by these uh, companies. So there's, there's more of that, I'd say. No, it's interesting. And then obviously, what you're happy to get back in Madrid? There must be a lot. It must be nice to be home. The main reason was uh, be closer to family and friends, especially family. Um, it's not like, the same on FaceTime, is it? It's not the yeah, same. Exactly. And after five years, it becomes a little bit hard. So you, you start missing your friends, uh, your family, and uh, yeah. I'd say also the the weather and the and the food, for, of course, you know, and the you party. Know what, right? no, so, no, no, I knew you were going to bring this up. And I, <laughs> looking outside, we actually have somewhat all right weather at the moment. So again, I like to pinpoint. I, I like to say that's because you're on the, you know, I'm talking to you right now. This weather. The minute you we hang up, yeah. it's all going to go downhill again. <laughs> Not really. Like uh, in don't know. Like here in in Spain, for example, in winter, this is always sunny. Even if it's freezing cold, it's always sunny. All that vitamin D, you just still get, you just, yeah. No, I, I do. I, the minute the sun comes out, it's like, yes, this is amazing. And I'm thinking, why can't we have this all year? And yeah, you get that. I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> yeah. And also the, it feels like in London, maybe the everything pivots around work. The uh, culture of like the work culture and yeah, everything. Everything, like maybe your friends will be... You will you will hang out with friends that uh, you meet at work. Uh, everything evolves around work. 
Uh, that's my feeling. Like in 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 Spain, it's a little bit different. So can, it's kind of a, a mental mental health thing. Uh, I'm not sure how uh, I would explain it, but it feels a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, and you've got kind of a separation from work to life, and like you know, whatever happens in work doesn't affect your life and whatever happens in life doesn't affect your work and there's not this kind of i mean there, there is going to be a natural blend of the two but it's nice to have some distinct things yeah yeah, yeah. it's so interesting that's... you mentioned you mentioned that though because um so i know you've been to japan last year yeah and, uh, so i'm actually go- yeah and i'm going this year and uh, I'm, I'm looking into the culture and everything and it seems like in japan i could be completely wrong but work life is just like what you've just mentioned there where Super essentially crazy. it's like yeah, yeah, like they work, uh, you know, all day for hours and end, and then they'll go out and drink with their work people at night. And it's kind of like everything is work. Yeah. The whole life is work. And yeah. it's really strange that because I think that, as like you say, like London, maybe England is probably more on that side, but it's definitely not that where it's exactly. every Yeah, no, no, it's totally. Yeah. Also, when, when I uh, went uh, to the States, it's also crazy at there. Like uh, everything there is, is about work mostly uh in japan uh is even worse than that like i think there's a lot of uh, health uh, mental health issues because of this in in japan um and i wouldn't say that in london is exactly the the same situation uh, i uh, in in spain in madrid is less of that i would say and, and and I suppose, you know, the people's argument then is to always be doing work is pr- productivity, but it just burns you out. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't think there is actually any kind of like you can actually see any, you know, like does Japan produce more than, you know, maybe other countries that aren't doing this? I don't know. And it's interesting because obviously, yeah, if you burn yourself out, you're completely you're not going to be any use to anyone else. So the balance is really key. And And for creativity, you need to stop and think. And, and do other things. Yeah, exactly. do exercise, do exactly. anything. Yeah, absolutely. Go for a walk if, or something. You, and that, if, I mean, that's one thing you've been back to the gym now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So now, now I have more time for these uh, kind of. Well, before I had also the same kind of time, but uh, don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't do it. <laughs> Not sure why. Well, you're on holiday. It's like a five-year holiday. Yeah. Think of it. <laughs> Hard, yeah. A holiday while working, but you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned yeah. So you, when you were back in London, you know, you're working at Transferwise. And in that company, you're using Java and Kubernetes. Uh, but what is that, the tech stack that you're currently working at with at your new place? So the tech stack, um, so as any other big company, we have this big monolith. It all starts with a monolith, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think it's, but that's the success, isn't it? Exactly. The fact that you've, I think that's because people really hate on this and they like, you know, it's like, oh, this horrible old code. It's like, you, you're successful. Exactly. The reason why you've got legacy code is you're still a company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and precisely because of that, we are at the stage we are right now, uh, thanks to that monolith. So, so what language is that written in? Uh, Ruby and Rails. And as you can imagine, is. Uh, a little bit painful to work on that. It's um, active record everything. Yes, yes. and yeah. everything super coupled <laughs> to the framework. There is a lot of custom libraries, a little bit difficult to scale, all, all, all the kind of stuff that you would expect from, from a big monolith. But uh, happily, not many teams. And so we work on, on microservices now, uh, most of the teams, and not many teams have to deal with these super massive uh, monolith. So, so you've broken up. So that's obviously the monolith was there, and then bits have been now been broken out, decomposed into separate microservices and separate areas. And uh, those microservices, the, the new stuff that we are building, we are building it uh, with uh, Elixir and uh, Go because it's easier, it's easier to scale uh, than the, than the Ruby and Rails. 
I can imagine. And so what, what, so what bits then have you decided to use Elixir and go for then? Like what, what domains, well, bounded context essentially are there that you're using it for? So uh, almost any new microservices is being done with uh, Elixir. As I don't know. Uh, people just love this uh, technology and it just come, comes natural to develop it with it. And some of the teams that used to be more kind of uh, real-time develop or invested in Go and they are going towards that path um they're going towards that path i like it <laughs> <laughs> i'd say that um elixir is uh, really good for having a lot of uh, concurrent connections and if you are going to do something like uh I don't know sockets uh we, we actually have this use case where we have a lot of drivers and riders uh that follow their journeys and this kind of uh following up with your route and stuff is always uh it goes through a socket so you might have like thousands of sockets at the at the same time and, and Elixir really helps on, on these things. Yeah, that must be really cool, actually. A nice problem to have to try and solve because yeah. essentially, as you say, like you've got these real time and you're having to feed that information back. Yeah. So before Elixir, then it was all done in Rails. Yeah. It was all done in Ruby. Wow, that must have been tough. Yeah. Yeah, I I have to say that there's many changes that I didn't have to face. Like it seems that the company I joined uh, two years ago was a complete different company. Um, and I had like a lot of uh, funny stories uh, about the old times and how things <laughs> didn't, didn't scale. But nowadays, everything seems to be fixed. So I, I feel very lucky. That's really cool. And so Elixir then, we should go more into depth with there then. So so what really then is Elixir then? Obviously, it deals with concurrency very well, but what, what actually is it? So Elixir is, kind of, is, is a language that uh, compiles over the BIM virtual machine. The BIM uh, virtual machine is the Erlang uh, virtual machine. So Erlang has a, kind of a tricky syntax um, that makes it... It is a, it is a funky looking syntax. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so somebody, I, I think it was uh, originally from the Ruby uh, community. Uh, so the author of this thing uh, was uh, Jose, Jose Balim, uh, a Brazilian guy, if I'm not wrong. And he thought that maybe creating a easier uh, syntax, uh, people would uh, adopt or start using uh, the Erlang virtual machine more and start uh, using uh, its cap- capabilities. Um, so Erlang has a lot of uh, uh, really nice benefits. And uh, because now you have this uh, uh, easier uh, language, uh, you, you now, now can have all these things uh, so it, would you say then Elixir then is really just a different syntax then for the same problems yeah. that Erlang will solve? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I would I, I would compare it with, uh, for example, uh, when, so we actually went through the same thing, for example, in the JavaScript community with uh, CoffeeScript, right? JavaScript ES5 uh, wasn't, uh, didn't have many things that uh, people wanted. So uh, somebody... Uh, thought it was a great idea to develop a new language that, that transpiled into uh, ES5, and then you have this fancier new new syntax. Or this could be compared to actually a better example with the JVM and all the languages that we have in there, right? Like, oh yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you have these these things, these many languages that com- uh, compile into the auth code that the JVM understands. And then you have many options. You can have like super functional languages like like Scala or dynamic languages like Ruby or just Java, right? Now that's really cool. And then so obviously, yeah, Lix has like built up a lot of traction now. 
And uh, obviously, being from the Ruby and Rails world, like your company, I'm guessing that's one of the, the, the nicer reasons to go is the fact that the syntax looks quite similar. But the paradigm is completely different, though, isn't it? It is very, very different. So it's based on the actor model, uh, which formally is a mathematical model, but practically is about having processes that uh, handle state and communicate to other processes through messages. It could be like true OO is what you're really thinking. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) actually it is. And it's mind blowing, like uh, to see how these things communicate. Like for example, in it shares a lot of... um, commonalities with uh, Clojure, for example, and that's why why I love it. Um, so, for example, you have immutable state. Uh, when you modify something, you don't modify the original object. You create a new one, right? You have this pipe operator that you also have in, in Clojure, so uh, things become way, uh, way more readable. Uh, it has this thing uh, that uh, it, it is very interesting, uh, which is the pattern matching. Oh, super, like, like Haskell's got and things like that. Yeah, and or, or Clojure. So in Clojure, you have the, the structuring. Um, but here, it, 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 it's taken to the extreme. Like stero- on steroids. Yeah, so, so for example, <laughs> you don't write if and else. You just have like a different uh, uh, function definition with a different pattern match on the arguments. So you actually divert the flow based on pattern matching, which is very, very interesting um it doesn't have exceptions so it, it takes a little bit to get used yeah. to it how do you do how do you do with like error states then so it, it, it works very similarly to what happens in go so you always return kind of a tuple with the st- with the state like okay or error and and then the result and because in in go it's quite tedious to have this thing because you you are forced yeah you're forced to handle this thing with this if uh, error or whatever, um, but in but because in in Elixir you have uh, pattern matching, it is very easy to handle this kind of uh, behavior. That's interesting, and obviously because like as you say, it's built on the Beam, so it's built on Beam, the Erlang virtual machine, and then Erlang's been around for years, like with Ericsson and stuff. Yep. And then obviously now it's getting hot. The, the one thing actually with Erlang that is coupled with it a lot is the OTP. Yep. Would you mind? Because I think there's a confusion there. Like what does actually Erlang or Elixir provide you? And what does like OTP provide you? So OTPs, uh, well, first of all, I'm talking without being being uh, an expert, uh, five, five months of experience. So I might say uh, many things that are not 100% correct. I've done, <laughs> I, I would, I'd hate to go back on the podcast okay. I've done and the amount of errors I've said. You know, no, no worries. Uh, so, so um OTP, um, it is a, a really pow- it's kind of a library that Erlang provides for many things. Um, you want to don't know. Uh, so for example, to for handling state, there is an abstraction that Erlang provides through OTP that is called a gen server, and that's provided by this library. So behind that abstraction, uh, there is kind of a a loop with with the message passing and all these things, uh, but uh, it's hidden from view because you have to kind of implement this kind of uh, interface. And they provide many, many of these uh, things so you can be more productive in your development. That's cool. And it's like, so it's solve problems kind of thing. So you've got the solve problems and you obviously, yeah, you're using these kind of abstractions. Yep. And obviously, they've solved a lot of problems because, I mean, Erlang was made for, like, networks, wasn't it? Like, yeah. mobile networks and stuff. So, yeah. and, and you said you're using it then for primarily kind of this tracking system. Yeah. Is, are you using it for other things as well then? Uh, you can use it. So, uh, 
Erlang was built for, as, as you said, for communications. Um, so Erlang by its nature is very fault tolerant and distributed. So creating clusters of, uh, of processes that communicate each other. Like Erlang also has uh, uh, this supervisor's uh, model that uh, comes for free. Um, and it allows you to create these really complex distributed systems. Um, you have all of that. And then um, because the Elixir people came from the Ruby community and all these things, they, they create, for example, web frameworks um, that have uh, just regular request response management, and then you have sockets on on top of the on top of the framework, and on top of Erlang and, and OTB. And, and how does this manage this then? This like multiple like does it have one single thread? Is it multi, obviously it's multi probably multi threaded? Like how how is the threading working? So the concurrency model. One of the cool things about the BIM uh, is that it can it can raise uh, a lot of these green threads. Like if the operative system has to create a thread. Is something that is quite heavy. Uh, the the like Java does and other that things like exactly. that. Exactly. So so it is very similar. Like uh, usually um, creating a new a new thread is is very costly, but in the Beam is a really cheap thing. Uh, you can have millions of uh, these green processes in your in your local machine. Like it's very easy to create create them, destroying them, and and monitoring them. Um, so it's one of the advantages for creating. Uh, multi uh, concurrent applications nice and i think go has that as well with go routines and stuff doesn't it, it uses the concept of green threads yeah. and so what, what actually is a green thread then like what what's kind of different compared to like a full thread is it shared kind of threads between or how, how does that work uh, I, I, i'm not sure i, I think magic, just, just, magic. It's, it's magic <laughs> you, you you know that that thing is there and is well supported and you don't uh, worry about anything else well this is it i mean it's, that, that's the sign of a good abstraction yeah. you yeah. know it's like you don't have to worry about and like i say it's, it's it's been running for years and it's amazing i mean it's it's really cool that it, that like obviously elixir came around and has kind of made it hot again to use this or at least made it appealing and one of the things is you know you see the phoenix framework so is that would that would you say the phoenix framework is a like akin to like what the rails framework is but for elixir or is it does it take a different approach obviously with like the you know the way it does sockets and whatnot i think it started that way uh but the more you get into uh, functional programming the more kind of explicit you have to be uh so one of the things that rails embraces is that is the, is this thing this mantra on conventions over configuration right like uh, and there's there's a lot of magic uh you you don't you get into an action into a controller and you don't even receive the request you you know that the request is there right in in elixir uh, everything is a chain of transformations and you can see everything that happens till you get a response so it's, it's quite explicit in a, in a sense so you're just pipe you're composing these things together yep. piping it through yeah that's cool yeah yeah and uh, because everything is immutable, then it's easier to reason about. Uh, there's no this global state. Just thing. change, you know, just mutate everything, yeah, you know. Yeah. And Life is so much easier when you have a mutable state. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. And, and, and the approach also for the, uh, for the model when you have an ORM thingy. So the ORM in, in Phoenix is uh, called Ecto. And uh, it has a different approach on, on managing state. Like you have these chain sets you don't actually have like an entity that you mutate uh you just create these chain sets and then the engine process Are they just functions then that you're running yeah, over the exactly chain yeah. state. cool yeah. 
you have to get used to it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> For me, it, it, it's not like a unit of work kind of thing where you're changing this, changing this. All right, do what you need to do to get it to this. It's like building up these mutations, like kind of mapping over it to change it or reducing over it so to change it. If, if you come up, uh, if you come from from uh, object-oriented uh, language like Java or PHP or any of these, uh, and suddenly you don't have, you deal with raw data structures, it feels a little bit challenging because you're not used to that. Right, like uh, you just encapsulate the the state of the inside of an object, and you expose the behavior. But here, you have the behavior outside or in like in, 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 the, in the module. So I think yeah. like using closure and stuff must have helped you here. Exactly, kind yeah. of you know this ability to yeah, you you split data from the function. And you're able, to, you're not coupling the two together and then having to write. I think what was that saying? Like I would prefer to have ten functions that can be used over you know ten things other than a hundred function, hundred you know different functions and whatnot. I'm completely butchering that. I'll put that in the show notes. But yeah, I, I completely agree. Like it's such a better way of doing it, you know, and having these concepts, you know, these concepts that can be used in multiple settings. I do. I have to say, I do miss this kind of uh, protection in a, in a sense. Some, something that I, I haven't said uh, before is is that uh, Elixir is a dynamic language also. Yes. Now, how does that, does that bite you? I mean, you, you've come from the Java world now. Yeah. Obviously you were PHP and you've come to the, from the Java world where everything's obviously statically tight. I'm I'm still super addicted to types uh, because it it gives me so much information about the system. Um, it helped me so much uh, at compile time. The editor will help me do kind of complex. It will do a lot of work for you, I know. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, mixed feelings. I, I I would say that I'm still addicted to to types, and I would love to see types. Uh, actually, uh, Elixir has this thing. So I, I imagine, do you remember in PHP where? Uh, when we did we didn't have uh, type hints, we used to put these uh, PHP doc blocks. Oh, the doc blocks, yeah. Yeah. So in comments as code, essentially. In in, in Elixir, uh, there is this thing. Um, I don't know what's the proper name for them, uh, but uh, they look like annotations. Um, but is a oh, you can decorate your code with these annotations, can you then? A type. It is not exactly. A, it's not exactly a, a decoration because they do not. They do not grab something. Uh, is and also you can use them to add uh, constants into modules, but you use them, uh, there is a kind of an annotation that uh, is called spec, where you define kind of the types that the function is going to receive. And uh, that thing with another tool called the dialyzer um, allows you to analyze statically your, your code. I was going to ask about dialyzer because that's something when I looking from afar at Erlang and stuff, that seems like a very interesting project. Yeah. Yeah, but it is quite old, I think. And uh, I mean, you can run this thing uh, on Elixir and everything, but it's not the same experience as I had. I used to have uh, with with Java, for example, where everything is super integrated. Like, for example, I I'm uh, this the support for the for Elixir is is not that good in the editors compared to IntelliJ, for example. Um, I'm I'm using Visual Studio. Yeah, I was going to ask actually. What, what, yeah, what do you use for it? What support do you get from it? Because I don't think anyone's tackled really Erlang and Elixir. I mean, because Elixir is the first kind of bringing it to the mainstream or people. It's yeah, trying to get support in the IDEs. I think there's a lot of people that use uh, Emacs as. Uh, uh, oh, lovely! You know, as, as, as closure, like people that don't know have uh, twenty fingers and they can do this. Magic yeah, and they've got their custom. Everything's custom, and everything's you know they're specific, and they've got their GitHub repo, you know, their repo that they bring it all down, and it's like, 
oh man i tried to do that i just yeah no <laughs> um and then there's a plugin for intellij um but it doesn't work very well um and visual studio has like a, a few plug plugins for elixir uh, some of them are just about synta syntax highlighting and there is uh, this one um i think it's called ls elixir or something like that um that basically compiles and and executes uh, your code and gives you kind of real time feedback which is the best experience i had for development but it's not at the same level as as intellij like in in many ways um imagine refactoring uh because everything is dynamic and 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 the editor doesn't help you much you have to rely on on find and replace like the old times and oh man and, and just just so just beam the actual virtual machine does that handle types or is that dynamic in nature it, it as well is, it, and it's... it is completely dynamic yeah so there's no way it's just like a nice thing because i was thinking like if erlang erlang's dynamic as well isn't it yeah exactly so well, why is that do you know under, under reason why that is is that something like to do with the fact of this model that it, it's best for it to be dynamic i think so i was uh asking this thing to a colleague in my team uh why is this and uh he told me and i'm not sure uh this is the actual story but it made sense to me we can blame it we don't need to worry you blame it yeah. um that uh because of the message passing nature uh typing that kind of uh interaction is very difficult i suppose like small talk as well isn't it where that's dynamic as well and it do, it kind of doesn't lend itself like a, an object should accept any message it just depends on what it does with that message exactly um, one thing actually I was going to bring up is so this this idea of hot reloading and stuff and live preview in, in Phoenix. Would you mind maybe explaining that a little bit? So this is something that is a super so uh, hot reloading. Uh, so there is this thing called Remix. I'm not a power user of of that thing, so I, I couldn't explain much. But uh, you can replace modules in real time, like in in, in production. Yeah. So you connect to the machine and then you just like change uh, code. Like in in a very similar way as as many things that we've seen with the closure, like you just change things dynamically, which seems quite interesting. Uh, but I haven't I haven't tried yet. And the live view thing, uh, I think is gonna be, don't know, a killer feature for for Phoenix, and it's actually a differentiator from other frameworks, a big differentiator. Um, this is something that is quite uh, recent and it's not stable yet. Uh, it was announced a year ago or don't know in one of these big conferences and um it's about having imagine reacting the server so you could actually like re live reload just server code yes yes so so imagine having uh javascript imagine uh having a field for search to search something right and uh instead of having like a kind of a single page application or this react component that goes to the back end and then renders this stuff in the front end and is very interactive imagine if you were searching this thing and actually it re-renders the page via a socket so it's actually without having to do just the client side like you can do hot reloading in like react it can actually do it for real websites that are static websites essentially yeah. So you can have like dynamic websites in nature high, the highly interactive websites uh, being read, rendered on the server, and the and the response rate uh, the is very is super fast. 
So it totally feels like a single page application. Yeah, that that's a bit mind blowing as well, because you're so used to thinking you have to dump it all to the client, but you can still maintain a lot on the server still. So you, you have a connection with the server through, through a WebSocket, and then the server uh, calculates the difference between what you have in your browser and what it's been. Sounds very reactive, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like a React thing in the server, and you, ju- you just get like the minimum thing that your browser needs to be refreshed, which is kind of mind-blowing. And this allows you to not have JavaScript at all. Yeah, because you don't have to worry about And you can just, you never have to dump anything, a binary, like any stat, you know, compiled JavaScript or whatever you do. That's crazy. It, it is crazy. So, so that's something that you guys are looking at. I was going to ask, like, you know, kind of how do you deal with the, like the SPA approach or the, the client-side approach? Is, is this something you're looking at? I mean, obviously, it's, it's a new feature, so you're not you're not in production yet. But kind of like, is this something you're definitely looking at in the future? It, it is something that uh, I want to play with, and probably my team wants wants to play with. Uh, but for now, so uh, right now, how do we do things? Is uh, we have a really top uh, team um, front end team that does everything with TypeScript and React and Redux, and we have these kind of separation between server where we provide an API and the client for the SPA. So you're like a customer kind of different, you know, your customer relationship with them, that this is the API provide and then they'll work on it, but they won't be working on the API as well. You kind of have a distinct roles. Yeah. How, how do you find that works with like making features and stuff and providing? Because obviously, you know, if, you, if you're working in a smaller place, you know, you can be working on the API side of things and also then doing, you know, the SPA itself. And you've obviously got that marrying. How does it, yeah, how, how do features get built and, and things work in that kind of environment? So you usually, because we are part of the same team and uh, we can just uh, work close together. Uh, we usually agree on an interface on how things are going to communicate and then we start working in parallel and then at some point we have to integrate with, with each other. Do you do some things like RAML and things like that, all these language like Swagger and things to, to provide and spec out the APIs or the things you're using and then you're able to kind of mock them for the SPA or is it really you're working with real from the off? Sometimes, uh, so for example, Swagger works really well if you, if you have a REST API, but uh, in our case, we mostly interact uh, with the front end through sockets. So or, it's all sockets. <laughs> so API is a little bit different how how that thing looks. Uh, we usually document this thing on the features that we want to work on. So we agree on a on how are we going to communicate. Uh, but there is no technology to make this thing self exploratory. You kind of just, you need to know kind of it's the protocol of it. You need to know what you, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. And so what things then, so obviously you've touched upon the JVM, you touched on Java. What things, other things other than types do you miss from the JVM? Because you, you spent a fair few years with the JVM. Well, I, first of all, I, I miss types, uh, as I said before, because, uh, well, that's not that's not from the JVM, but the, the whole Java thing. Um, I miss the editors and the tooling that I used to have with Java because it feels a little bit more mature. Uh, there's a lot of investment, isn't there? Because like Java and things, these are big corporate languages in quotes, like they, the tooling around it's going to, there's a lot of money to make the tooling around it good. Yeah. And IntelliJ just do like, you know, IntelliJ and like, you know, JetBrains, they do amazing work with all of these. Yeah. It's a shame that they haven't got like an Elixir. That maybe one day down the pipe, you know, there's an Erlang one. or So uh, right now there's a, there's a lot of interest on that we we. We have a lot of uh, tools and things, and the community is really 
uh, vested into creating the best tooling out there, but you cannot compare a uh, language or an ecosystem that's been super active on the last 20 years with Elixir, for example. And uh, you, you could compare, okay, Erlang has been even way more long uh, in, out in, in, in the wild, but uh, it wasn't really mainstream. So the tooling that we have in the JVM world is broader. Yeah, it's tooling and it's, as you say, it's the maturity of the ecosystem, like the libraries, libraries and stuff. Because, uh, things th- yeah, like that, that things you must take for granted and you just think, oh, I can get a library for that. And then probably it doesn't exist in Erlang or Elixir. Okay, actually, can you trans? Can you can you go between the two? Can you use Erlang? Like exactly. For example, the uh, OTP thing is 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 uh, is an Erlang thing. Uh, so you can access everything that Erlang has from Elixir, and there's a lot of libraries in in Erlang. Uh, but if you compare the amount of libraries and projects, and who supports them between each two, between Java and Erlang or Elixir, uh, there's there's a big difference. For example, if you find a library about, uh, I don't know, a protobuf. Uh, maybe there is only one library about that and it's about a guy that does this thing in his free time. Yeah, he says he wrote this, wrote this thing, dumped it on like GitHub or whatever. Or, or the because I'm sure like does Elixir and Erlang have their own package managers and whatnot. So there is a there's a packet package manager for Elixir called Mix, and uh, you have everything that you would expect from a package manager, um, and many libraries and all these things. But the uh, ecosystem is a little bit uh, less mature, and uh, there's there's many times that you have to implement a lot of things by yourself. That's the trouble with being like cutting edge in quotes or like the latest, the latest thing that's obviously hot is that you don't get the benefit. And, and to be honest, that's one of the reasons why using like the JVM or using languages that are tried and tested, that's the reason to use them is because they've got this tooling, they've got these libraries around it. And it's not just what's hot. It's like what's kind of, you know, useful. Precisely. And I was going to ask, actually, just kind of a random question. But so you mentioned that. So obviously you can use Erlang uh, modules or, you know, kind of code in Elixir. Now, similar to how Clojure and, you know, you can use Java code, the syntax gets a bit squiffy because you have to start using objects and stuff. Is there, is it, is it nice to work with a, a, like Erlang code in Elixir or does there, does it just not fit right? Like how does that work? No, it's, it's really easy to work with. Uh, there's not that big of a difference. The only thing is there's a few conventions, like uh, everything that is coming from Erlang is at lower case and has like these uh, symbol um, so you know, you'll know if it's Erlang code, will you? Yeah, if you're looking you, you at Elixir know, code, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, is Erlang, yeah. And I suppose the, the way around that is to like wrap them. I mean, that's what like F Sharp you're doing things like people wrap, like obviously, like you know, these C Sharp libraries and stuff with an API around it, which provides it with a more how we want to deal with it in a functional way or an F Sharp way, yes. and similar, like you know, thing with closure and whatnot. There is um, for any Erlang, well, uh, popular Erlang library uh, or OTP thing, uh, there's probably a translated library somewhere that is more idiomatic in Elixir. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so for people then, like for the audience who are, you know, thinking like, oh, this sounds pretty cool, you know, looking Elixir, looking Erlang, what resources, you know, you mentioned you've only, you've done like six months of this. And before that, I'm sure... I don't know how much of the Elixir and Erlang you actually did, but I don't think it was that much. I did nothing. Like, nothing. What, what, <laughs> so there you go. So, so what, what resources would you find valuable? Definitely it'd be useful to put in the show notes. Uh, so uh, just a, a guy that is very talented about this in my team, and he recommended me like a couple of books and a few resources for this. Um, so I read two books on this uh, before jumping into writing anything. Uh, one was called Programming in Elixir Book, which is about the 
common stuff, well, the basic stuff on Elixir. And then I read another book on Phoenix because it's the framework that we use and how sockets work and how the controller works and how the process of transform, transforming a, a request into a, transpo, uh, in, into a response works, templating and all these things. So these, these two books, uh, books uh, really helped me. And then uh, you could see that the Elixir documentation is quite friendly. Almost anything you, you, you search has this really nice UI and uh, really nice documentation for almost any library. So is it very rich documentation as well then, which is definitely valuable in a language that's so new or so, you know, kind of fresh? It, it is actually built in in, in the language. Uh, so, for example, there is also uh, one of these features that I didn't mention, but you can write uh, tests on your your documentation can be tested. So, for example, if you say this this function has this input and this is the output in the comment, that is going to appear in the docs when you generate the docs. Uh, you can run tests. You, you can run that thing as a test. You can validate exactly. that as a test. So, 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 <laughs> so, so your your comment uh, must be updated. Uh, m- must be up to date with the with the code. So, if your comment doesn't pass the code, that that, that test will fail. That's very cool. The amount of times, obviously, you know, the argument with comments, you know, just get it goes outdated from the code. Like being able to actually do that and validate that is super interesting. Another resource that, uh, well, a few other resources that uh, really helped me was uh, this Exorcism uh, platform that has uh, an Elixir course. There is these little katas that you do, uh, like competitive programming, where you do uh, how to short an array, whatever. And there's these uh, exercises where people give you feedback. And there's also this other platform called uh, Code Wars. Uh, which is also about competitive uh, programming, uh, where you there's an entire category of uh, Elixir challenges, and uh, you just like complete them and uh, get more points eventually. Oh, very <laughs> so nice! You, I'll put all those in the show notes. That's really cool. You, you learned about uh, a lot of uh, basic stuff with this, and then of course doing stuff and having people that help you out to get used to the language and the tricky things. That's it. Because, I mean, you can read about it all you like, but actually using it and trying to solve problems in it is really when you really grasp a language or a paradigm. Like you take a problem, actually try and map it out. So so it's interesting. So obviously, you know, the, the monolith was Ruby on Rails. So everything's moving, you say, to Elixir and Go. Or are you are you going to be keeping some of it? Is the idea to break it up completely and completely move away from Ruby? The idea is to, at some point, just remove the monolith because it's a pain point for every team. As uh, the ownership of that thing is shared across many teams. Uh, just participating, releasing bugs and all these things are kind of tricky to manage. Yeah, that's the thing. And then obviously Elixir seems to be doing a lot of the work that you want there uh, for kind of a general purpose. I mean, you could actually class it as really general purpose for what you want to do. You can solve many different problems with it. So how much how much Go have you actually had to touch uh, upon None. yet? <laughs> None. Now, I, I, I've already spoke to you about this a little bit, but like, what, what, what is your opinion on Go? Are you a fan of Go? Uh, yes, uh, I think it's... Uh, so I, I used to do uh, C stuff at uni, and it feels like an improved C. Uh, and I, I play with it. Um, I think um, maybe it's a little bit too low level, but it's also kind of the purpose of it. Um, so you can do a, a lot of uh, really interesting stuff. 
I don't like the fact that uh, it doesn't have generics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't. Well, I'm I'm gonna get into a tricky territory, right? <laughs> but generics, uh, error handling, and this this kind of stuff uh, is a little bit. But I think it's it's a, it's a great language. You know, Kubernetes is is built with it. Uh, it's, it's a great language. Uh, generally. Yeah, a lot of tooling now is using Go, isn't it? Like a lot of it, a lot of the HashiCorp stuff, Terraform, whatnot, and everything. Everything Go, seems Go to be written in Go. Originally, uh, as far as I know, was built in Google for systems uh, tooling, so it really fits with this uh, uh, use case. Um, also, of course, it's statically typed, and uh, it one one of the cool things is that the language has been optimized to be compiled fast. And that makes a difference because, for example, when you have a really big project in in Java, uh, it starts becoming slow to compile. Yeah. How do they deal with, do they have like partial compilations and stuff? Because I know at TypeScript, that was one of the big things in the latest release where they do, they only compile or transpile, sorry, what they actually need to. Because as you say, the project gets bigger and the more time it takes to actually compile the thing. (laughs) No idea. Uh, I think, so for example, how do you position the, the types in the function definition? It has a lot to do with uh, how fast you you, do, you want to read, to pass, and compile the file. Um, so a lot of decisions has been made just to make it faster, and it's, it's super optimal. Also, the way uh, modules work and structures, uh, you can it resembles a me uh, to me a lot. Uh, you can do almost like object-oriented code, even if you have structs and all these things. Um, it feels quite interesting. I I would definitely would do stuff with go yeah but i didn't have the opportunity yeah definitely and I, not, not yet well not yet not yet indeed but yeah <laughs> so obviously yeah so you've got you know elixir you've got go there you're moving away from ruby on rails and the next thing really is yeah working out like so how do you do deployments and infrastructure then so how how you know what's your ci pipeline like when i joined uh we were right in the middle of the transition from travis ci to gitlab ci and then you thought GitHub, GitLab CI, that looks really, you know, like the the younger brother, yeah. the crappy younger brother of GitHub. Yeah. Sure everyone, everyone I think, has this opinion <laughs> um, that, like, it's just a worse product than, than GitHub. Um, and uh, also it happens that uh, a lot of uh, people from our company came from, from GitLab. So I thought there was this bias on using GitLab for yeah, yeah, there's a vested exactly. interest in using a product. Uh, so I was yeah. really skeptical uh, about this thing. Um, but then I started using it, and it is unbelievably, unbelievably uh, good. It's, it's a really great product. Uh, it has, so you have, first first of all, you have um, namespaces. So, for example, in GitHub, everything is at the same level. Yeah, you've got, you've got like, your, your, whatever your organization is or whatever your name is, then everything Exactly. And and here you can have actually a namespace for your team and you can have sub namespaces for that, a namespace for product, a namespace for, I don't know, management, a namespace for whatever you want to create in there. So you don't have to break up per organization because that's the trick, isn't it, that you end up having to do is to have multiple organizations for different yeah, problems, which is not what you want. You want your top level. And then, as you say, namespacing, it, it sounds really cool. It is really cool. And it helps a lot with organizing stuff. Like if you want to see what do we have, what repositories do we own, you just go to our namespace and that's it. Like there's, there's no searching, there's, there's, there's no tags, there's, there's nothing nothing like that. Um, so that that's just like a really small detail on the whole platform. Um, but then you also have a CI. I mean, and you have all these for free. Like in the community edition, 
you you have all these things for free. So and the CI is not kind of like this creepy CI, uh, crappy CI that don't know they didn't put uh, effort on it. Yeah, they, they, it, they didn't just tag it on at the end saying we need to have a CI to add to the product. Yeah, which was my first thought, right? Like they offer a CI. Well, I love it because I was thinking the exact same thing as you. I, I've only just come to the thought of like actually GitLab and GitLab CI, and it's yeah, actually is really good. The, the, the CI is as good as uh, SQL CI. It's like you, you know, uh, like a, a company that is built around let's create a CI. You have that thing almost in 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 GitLab, which is. I don't know amazing and you have this thing for free like you just connect this thing uh connect the executors to whatever platform you have uh i think in our case is google cloud or amazon web services no idea but you have all these things and the cool thing is uh you have support for docker docker and docker isn't it yeah you could do the dnd thing and then be able to actually you know compart like actually make and push it it is images. don't know amazing. So I so uh, SQL CI didn't start uh, like this way because I mean, in my previous company I used to uh, use uh, SQL CI a lot and in SQL CI 1.0, which was like a couple of years ago, uh, we didn't have Docker and they, they introduced uh, SQL CI 2.0 and now you have Docker and it was a massive thing, right? But in in SQL CI uh, sorry in in GitLab CI now now you have Docker and not only that uh, you have a Docker repository per rep- uh, per repository, uh, sorry, a Docker a Docker registry per repository for free. You actually, oh, so you can actually push to their own repo. Yeah, their, exactly. Their own, so, you have your own Docker repository yeah. inside GitLab as well. So, so you not only have like this Git Git repository, you have the CI. Oh, I I forgot to say that in the CI you also have uh, pipelines as you oh, have and really nice rich pipelines as well, isn't it? That you can do. Yeah. You can Man. run things in parallel. You can see the entire pipeline running, and yeah, because you can like do pipe. You can do like kind of sub pipe, like you know, like build artifact kind of thing, where you can build artifacts from certain pipelines to you know to cache things and whatnot. So you can do everything you want in there, and uh, you work with Docker. So, for example, what we did was create uh, Docker images for every kind of project we had. So, for example, we had an an Elixir Docker image for running the tests. Uh, we had uh, uh, Node.js image uh, with Packstop, which is something for testing the UI or whatever. And and then you just have this configuration file in YAML um, and you just run the pipeline. And you have your the images in the registries inside, uh, well managed uh, through GitLab CI and everything is so smooth and, I don't know, it feels great. And also like uh, this namespacing we were talking before, uh, the the configuration sometimes uh, because you have many projects and all these things you share a lot of uh, environment variables like imagine uh, the organization's the N- npm token for the whole organization right you will have to copy and paste this thing for every project and that's yeah, and all the tedious. secrets and stuff and it gets a bit yeah you want it in one central but, place ideally but in in gitlab uh, namespaces uh, so imagine uh, or or namespace is uh, whatever or or URL slash product because we're part of product uh, slash uh, business and at the product level you will have all the common configuration for every product project so I don't have to redefine those ah, things that's cool and you can change it in one place and obviously yes, yes that is what you want to do and and 
if, if you don't have the permissions, maybe you're not allowed to see, well, you actually can dump an environment variable, but uh, these things can be secret. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's really well thought. That is crazy. Like, and, and so with, with GitLab, actually, like just the, the actual Git kind of part of it, um, how's the like review process, PRs, et cetera? Like how similar and comparable is that to GitHub? Is it better or is it at least the same? You have to get uh, used to it. Uh, because it's a different interface, uh, but it's very similar. And I have to say, also, we use this thing to document uh, document a lot of our processes. So not only has this thing, but you also have uh, a lot of product management tools. Like you can have a board, you can estimate things. Um, we use, so every team has this uh, really simple repo called Lobby, uh, where we use these things for requesting or debating things and then having a record of these things and you just open an issue and then you just have the conversation in there because in in if you have something like slack or a chat and you discuss something then it's very difficult to go back and you can't tie it together can you absolutely and it's like oh i had this conversation somewhere but i can't remember where it was or whatnot yeah yeah so you have these things where you use gitlab for documentation too and you use you can have tags and i don't know you just blows my mind you you have yeah, all these like, things how, how has no one been telling us about this like yeah. I, I mean the joke was obviously when microsoft bought github everyone's like right i'm moving to gitlab and i'm moving to bitbucket or whatever you know and to be honest yeah you should move to gitlab then like it, it really is insane like the ci stuff like that's something i've been playing a little bit with at the moment and like the ability to you know make these docker images and stuff it's yeah super interesting for for an enterprise, definitely I would consider using GitLab um, because nowadays most of the stuff that you need, like you need a Docker registry, you need a CI, you need all these things, and you you just have a single platform for everything, and it's so nice to just have everything in the same place. Yeah, and you don't exactly you don't have to jump through hoops to freaking like try and work things out. So you've got your Docker images then, and is everything Dockerified then? So everything's containerized, all applications get deployed. Everything, everything. Awesome. I think I, I think it took a while. So the system teams, uh, the, the systems uh, team is uh, top of the class. I think I never worked with a team so so amazing. Uh, they they push the entire the, the entire organization forward, and they have this plan um, of eventually move to Kubernetes. Right now we are not there. Um, so, so, so what are you using at the moment then? Uh, Nomad. So we use Nomad for uh, for releasing stuff. I'm I, I'm not sure how it uh, fully works. Like uh, me as a client of the thing, I only have to touch a few YAML files and then things get deployed. See, that's that's nice. When you when you say it again, it's decent processes in place. They yeah. just get the work done. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. Nomad, Nomad to me seems like it's kind of like what the state management, what the scheduler and stuff does in Kubernetes, but for kind of anything. Like you can do it on containers, you can do it on bare metal. You can do it on kind of any of these things, multi-platform, multi-like kind of cloud provider. We, we basically tell Nomad, uh, I want to deploy this image and to this uh, service and then it just manages the thing. Or I want to change this environment variable to this other thing and it just like reboots the thing, it manages the thing and orchestra- orchestrates the thing, I, I guess. Uh, we also use Terraform for... Um, building the environments into the cloud, into Google Cloud in our case. Uh, and do you like, do you like Google Cloud? Because I think you were an AWS, weren't you, before? The thing is, like, I don't I don't actually see this thing because I'm 
I, I just you are just a customer for yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, I just developed like a little script to do continuous deployment, um, and it basically uh, so Nomad works on a kind of a file system where you have these little YAML files, and when you change or this is how the we have configured, uh, but uh, you change the version of a service. Uh, in the file, and then Nomad just uh, syncs that thing up, and then just to deploy. So I built like a really stupid uh, script that basically just changed this file, and then it does continuous deployment because it's part of the pipeline. <laughs> nice. And so, so the move then to Kubernetes then is that is that just to move with the time to use take advantage of what Kubernetes the platform can provide than what no 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 is there limitations with Nomad that they've spoken about? Yeah. So the end goal uh, is to move towards there. But first, we had to move through our, uh, through like a few stages, like for example, dockerizing everything, uh, setting setting up the metrics, uh, having an environment that has uh, everything set up in Google Cloud. I, I have no idea. Um, but uh, these are a few stages, and um, I think we're very close to getting to uh, Kubernetes at some point. Nice. And, and and for me as a client, is I don't really have to care about these things because these really clever people are really thinking about these uh, these these things and for me i only consume i only consume it by touching few yaml files i, I don't know how yeah, it works and even yeah exactly you just even those files or the abstractions they provide because that's something i've got in my head at the moment it's trying to really work out how much a developer should care about infrastructure obviously you know the push to the cloud the push to the you know kubernetes docker you know containerization of everything a lot of this kind of infrastructure and even like with kubernetes obviously you know like the ability to you know like define what you need in kubernetes like i want this to be you know whatever deployment i want this to you know with helm and whatnot how these all tie together how much a developer needs to worry about that and concern themselves with that uh, you know, obviously you moved from Kubernetes, you know, you had Kubernetes at, at TransferWise and then the moving obviously to Nomad here. How, how has that worked? Like, what's your opinion on this? I think the it is, it's not your responsibility to know how this thing works. I think it's very interesting and very valuable. And I've seen this pattern where if you want to, it's very easy to have a cross-team impact if, if, if you get and if you understand systems. Like, you can actually... Um, empower your team by developing this kind of layer in system. So uh, knowing how the thing works, it really helps your mm. team. Um, but not everyone needs to know this. Like you shouldn't have to onboard everyone and then everyone needs to know, right, we're using Kubernetes. This is how you set up a Kubernetes cluster. This is how... No, 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 no. I, I think people need to know how the thing works. So for example, how traffic is going to get route to your application how the thing works in in the, at the network level, for example. Um, but there, there's a few topics that are quite uh, complicated. Um, and I'm not sure if everyone should know about these things. Like, for example, you know, setting up the uh, ETCD cluster for for Kubernetes is, is, some, is really complex. And, mm. for example, if you use um what uh, aws already provides for kubernetes or um google uh, self managed uh, kubernetes thing do i really need to care how kubernetes actually works probably not i just i just need the abstraction i need the platform that you're going to provide and get on with 
at, at a client level, I need to know how, how, for example, it works. So, for example, if I want to make my teams uh, autonomous, you need to let them know. Well, they, they have to know how to actually don't know, increase the number of instances, uh, increase CPU, introduce sidekicks like Envoy or this mm. kind of stuff. Um, they need to know how to do that kind of stuff so you can be fully autonomous. It's not okay to go to the systems team and always ask them to do stuff for that's, you. That's it. But then I suppose it's that level, isn't it? So essentially you've got the platform and then the systems team provide you an external, like an internal platform that provides it more specific and then you're using that. And then if there is certain things that you do need, then you will go to the systems, but you should be able to do most of the stuff that you require on your own. And if not, then it's probably tooling or something that the system people should provide you with. And then, and then you mentioned that like Terraform and stuff. So do you have to deal with that or are you, are you, is that something that's just left automated, you know, obviously with the tooling that they provide? I almost didn't have to touch anything on there, uh, but for some stuff, like for example, we have some alerts, um, in Datadog that are managed by some Terraform things. Uh, so I had to change a few of them, but I, I think there's no need. That's very, that's interesting. It's an interesting kind of layering of things. You, you have to learn the things uh, that will make you autonomous in a way. So for example, if, if in order to uh, be able to create a service in production, uh, I have to learn whatever is necessary. Terraform, I will have to learn it because it's what makes us autonomous, right? I, I mm. cannot wait. I cannot throw a ticket to somebody else and tell them to do something because maybe those people will be overwhelmed by the number of tickets from other departments or other teams. So that's the rule, uh, the rule of thumb, like uh, mm. being autonomous. Sometimes you will have to learn these things. Now, is there fear from, say, like the systems team? And like obviously it's typical operations and stuff. I mean, this is obviously with the DevOps move and SRE and whatnot, but like the, the typical operations is their idea is not change anything. It's working. We'll leave it. And obviously if you got develop, you know, developers and people are going to come along and change things, you know, is there, there's a lot of trust there, I suppose. Yeah. As, as I said, uh, normally uh, what I've seen in, during my career is that you have either system teams uh, that uh, lag behind the product team like maybe you want to get into production and stuff and it's really a bit painful of a relationship and uh, companies where the system teams are actually pulling the rest of the company towards this uh, DevOps mindset. And I'm quite fortunate right now to be in this kind of company where the system teams are really uh, trying to make themselves redundant in a way uh, so the rest of the teams can be autonomous. That is so cool. That's very, very interesting. And, and another thing then, so obviously we talk about the code and whatnot, but developing it. And like, you know, you mentioned it's all in containers and stuff. Like, so on the local machines or what, what's the development environment like then for like uh, each of the developers? So we don't use, uh, luckily in the machine, we don't use Docker for some stuff. Like for example, if you want to run the uh, backstop uh, tests uh, for frontend where you need uh, Chromium and a few specific things, uh, we create some Docker images for that. But um, for example, for Elixir, there is, there is this thing called a ASDF, which is kind of like this uh, RVM for Ruby. Or there was another one. There was another one for PHP. But uh, it's this thing where you yeah the version manager thing. You can switch between them and stuff. Exactly. And and this thing has uh, a uh, a file in the project called the uh, tool version something, where you specify the version that your project needs. And once you get into that project, once you CD into that project, uh, the 
ASDF thingy um, changes the running version for those languages and platforms to the one that the project is using. Ah, so because that is one thing on my mind is that obviously you, you want to replicate production as much as you can in development. And the one caveat there is the more complex you make production with Kubernetes, with containerization, with, you know, the, the Kubernetes, you know, kind of cluster and you can do mini Kube instinct stuff and you can that, but it's trying to simplify as much as you can for developers. Do they need to have all this set up? And, and um, have you ever been bit by the fact of using kind of, you know, the, these kind of approaches over like, you know, running containers locally and all that? Because, I mean, obviously, there's a massive performance of using containers everywhere locally if you're on Mac or Windows. I I didn't have the experience uh, of that like uh, before because I was using Java and Java, you can run almost every version over the, JV, the, over the JVM. Uh, I we didn't have that issue. And right now, because of this tool, it's completely fine. So what about like um, databases and things like that? Would they all be spun up though with uh, Docker? Actually, yes. So we have this thing called uh, DevKit, uh, which because everything provides an image, as as, as we said before, like uh, um, when you deploy things uh, in Nomad, every service has to be Dockerized. So you can actually run every service locally if you want, uh, including a database. Uh, so for example, we use CouchDB. And uh, if you want to have a local instance of that thing, instead of installing the entire uh, couch natively in your in your disk, you just run a Docker image and you just spawn it when you are going to uh, do stuff and just stop it. When so, you, you... so you use Elixir kind of natively on the local on the machine and then you use the different, maybe different services external to that will be Docker images and containerized instances of them. Yes. How are you finding CouchDB? What was the reason behind using that uh, that database? Uh, I actually don't use it that much because the CouchDB is uh, our main storage for the monolith. So they were using they were using CouchDB for the monolith. Yes, I would yes. love to know what their data looks like. That sounds interesting. How did they get anything out of it? <laughs> no idea, no idea. And, and I know I can hate on you know relational databases, but I still love a good relational database. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't know. I I have no idea on on the. It's it's a little bit complicated, and and I've heard uh, very interesting stories about <laughs> trying to scale that thing out. Yeah, that does sound scary. Sometimes just a good relational database will get you so far, and that's why I was I was assuming when you said to me a monolith with Ruby on Rails, I was like, okay, using my SQL then. I'm guessing. Like, um... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, we use uh, Couch for the monolith, and. Um, we recently started using uh, uh, Bigtable from Google. Uh, okay. But because we have uh, some very specific use cases for time series uh, data, but it's the right. It's, it's kind of choosing the right tool for the right job for the job. That's right? it. Uh, you can if you're gonna, for example, if you're gonna use a, a document-oriented uh, database, and then you you just need these relationships and these. And you like to be you like doing random SQL like queries on these things. You don't know what you want to know about it yet. Yeah, the right tool for the job. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Kayvan, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. We're definitely going to have to do this again. I've got plenty. We've got plenty more. I mean, we wrote this. You know, we wrote this doc out, a Google Doc, and we've got so much more to talk about. And I realise like we're an over an hour in, so I definitely don't want to uh, keep you too long. Because I know it's a it's a work night. But thank you so much, man. It's been great chatting to you. And we'll definitely we'll we'll, we'll pencil another one in because this has been super interesting. Awesome. Just count on awesome. Me.
All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode, and we shall speak to you again next time. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.